it works really well. So it is, as it says on the can, low impact living. So this is what we're all needing. We're, we're needing to have carbon negative when we're building. Welcome to the Social Fabric Podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Splendori, and this week my guest is Deb Davis. Deb is part of a group that is looking to adopt the concept of co-housing in Ireland based on the Lilac Project in Leeds. But she also spoke to me candidly about breast cancer, music, religion, love, and so much more. For right reason, only a few seconds of the songs are played in this podcast. All songs are available on Spotify under the Social Fabric playlist. The program is also broadcast every Monday at 4.30pm on Near FM 90.3. If you would like to get in touch with the program or suggest a guest or perhaps you want to be the guest, please email me at info at socialfabric.ie. If you get a chance, please subscribe in iTunes and leave a review. It is much appreciated and it will make a massive difference. Thank you. Can I call you up a while We could reminisce on old days and we could talk a while. Sit and talk a while. That was great. So anyway, so you know it's just a conversation. Yeah. I did a little bit of research and you don't have much information, so yeah, just ask you a bunch of questions, even blabber on as yeah. much as you like and as, as little as you like. Great. And that's exactly where I want to start. So Okay. Anyway, Deb Davis. Thanks a million for your time. And uh, I see you have a little booklet with you, and that's exactly where I wanted to start. It was from the co-housing, because yes. I know a tiny bit about it, but I'd like to know a lot more about it. Okay, so great. So what are you doing, and how are you getting involved, and why? Yeah, so um, just before we turned on the mic there, you were talking about not getting into the rat race of house buying and all that kind of stuff, and um, I've been the same my whole life. I'm 53 now, and I just, the, the, it, it just, it didn't make sense to me people paying astronomical amounts of money. I mean, the World Health Organization says uh, a third, maximum a half of our household wage should be to go towards your home. But ideally, actually, I think 25% to 30% of your income. And in Ireland, it's anywhere between like 50 and 80%, I think people are spending on, you know, putting a roof over their head. So it never made sense to me to buy into that system of a mortgage where you're just absolutely stretched to your limit without any, what I see, just too much stress um, and it takes away from the quality of life. So I never bought a house. And when I came back from Australia um, when I was 28 years of age, I had traveled for a year over there and I'd traveled on my own and I'd met loads of amazing people. And I went to a town called Tilba Tilba, which was teeny tiny. And it was right by the sea and right by these incredible mountains. And the village at the time, you could walk barefoot through it. It was that kind of safe and small and all that kind of thing. And all the people who were there were craft people. In fact, how I'd met them was I worked at Uluru in the centre of Australia for three months. And uh, Uluru at the five star resort where I worked, they used to bring in craft people. And one of the craft people was a beautiful basket maker. So this basket maker lived in Tilba Tilba. So as I travelled, I popped into her and spent time with her. And I loved the simplicity of their life. I loved the community. I loved that everybody knew each other in the town. And I wrote a list of what I was looking for. So I wanted somewhere close to the sea. I wanted somewhere close to the mountains. I wanted somewhere that where I was drinking pure well water, clean water. And uh, an affordable, beautiful home around like-minded people. So... Here I am living in Greystone, a small <laughs> village, by the sea, by the mountains, wonderful. For me, the consciousness of the people living here is magnificent, mm. because even though it's a small village, I feel like there's a level of awareness where you can get on with your own life, and the help is there if you want it, mm. but I feel people don't invade one's space. They 
they hold and care for people and if it's needed they'll come in but if not they'll just let you get on with your your day so the idea of co-housing which just to be really clear because there's a big buzz going around at the moment which is co-living which is where we're back to an old paradigm of developers creating excessively expensive spaces for people to live in that are actually slightly too small i think for the human spirit to soar um, but there we have we're in the middle of a huge crisis in Ireland at the moment where there are not enough homes and there's no affordable homes for people to live so they think oh it's a great idea uh, these greedy uh, developers will build these spaces that are hardly big enough for people to live in charge them a lot of money and you know we'll pretend as a kind of a community element to it where we'll put in a centralized kitchen mm. woohoo so just to be really clear co-housing is where a group of people come together um, and we design as a group though we have one architect where we have our own homes so much as we are here sitting in this lovely um, estate in Greystones and so we happen to be lucky enough to be in the little cul-de-sac here where there's maybe 20 homes that's exactly what we are creating in our co-housing so we will have at the moment uh, we're visioning 25 dwellings it's based on uh, a very successful a thriving co-housing project in leeds called lilac low impact living affordable community so they are our blueprint uh, we've been to visit them they are prepared to mentor us into being they would love to see what they're doing rolled out you know throughout the world okay. it works really well so it is as it says on the can low impact living so this is what we're all needing we're we're needing to have carbon negative when we're building mm. you know um, we need to go beyond we, we can't sustain anymore we need to rejuvenate so that's what we're creating in our beautiful homes and community we need people okay so i have a couple more questions in that now you give me eight songs you can't have eight you can only have seven <laughs> so <laughs> but we start with the first one is it and then you can decide which one to take out at some point but you have this great shares, uh, I suppose it's a spoken word by Oscar Brown Jr. Bid them in. Very yeah. powerful, very powerful video. Why did you pick that one? So it was difficult to choose just one song from that album. It's, it's uh, in fact, a lot of the music that I've chosen, it's the whole album, which is what I would listen to. So. Sin and Soul um, is the album and my dad used to play that album for us when he drove us to school. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, I like to um, go with the seven year cycles in our lives. So this song is from the first seven year cycle of my life. And I remember obviously not really understanding it because it's, it's brutal, it's brutal. Um, but you know I love the words of it and the patter of it and now what I love about it is that it's a black man saying those words so there's some level it's just it's so incongruent but it's beautiful and brave get him in get him in that sun is hot and plenty bright let's get out to business and get home tonight get him in Auctioning slaves is a real high art. Bring that young gal, Roy, she's good for a start. Bid him in, get him in. Now here's a real goodbye on about 15. Her great-grandmammy was a die-homie queen. Just look at her face, she sure ain't homely. Like she in the Bible, she's black but comely. Bid him in. Gonna start at three. Can I hear three? Step up, Jans, take a good look, see, because I know you want to So we're sticking with the co-housing. I remember watching a documentary on something similar, I don't know if they call it co-housing in Denmark, 
where they create they create in this amazing space it's very simple ideas where uh, you might have a cycle track running through the for the little ones that's safe and that cycle track is also good for the prams and is that the idea is that creating a space that but what how does so in in the in practical term how does that differ from that uh, place they built down in Tipperary years ago. Clock Jordan. Clock Jordan. So Clock Jordan is what we would call an eco-village. And what they did was they bought um, a whole load of land. And um, at the time, unfortunately for them, they bought at the top of the market. Mm. So it, it can never be affordable. So that's one of the big differences. The other huge difference is that they sold plots of land. So each person gets to build their own home. Okay. Yeah, so it's very different. So what we're doing is we're a group of 34 adults at the moment. It, it, it will fluctuate slightly, but we're in or around the 34 mark. And we are what we're calling an intentional community. So when we came together, it was with a very specific draw that mm. that that connected us all and so within that we will be designing the space around what we feel are our priorities okay and have you got a place to start building it at some point or not yet okay not yet so the idea then is you're 34 perhaps going to 40 or whatever it may be you get together so okay with 40 families let's call it 40 families we can build 40 co-housing village so then you have to find a space somewhere and and but that's where the difficult end will lie with it who, who would sell you such a big piece of land at well funnily enough um the lilac leeds is on 1.4 acres okay and they've got 25 dwellings that are beautiful um, and you see when you're working as a group you can afford to have slightly smaller houses because there will be a common house as part of it. Mm. So, you know, if you want to have a big birthday party, you don't need to have a huge living room because there's going to be this shared space sure. that you can do that in. Also, we will be sharing our amenities and our cars. So we don't all need car park spaces outside. And in Leeds and in a lot of the co-housing models, what they've done is they've created the center space as a community space so like you say the cycle tracks mm. safe space for the kids to mm. run a pond is what's in the center of of lilac and the cars and there's 12 cars for um the all the adults which is 30 plus adults there and um, at either ends there's also polytunnels there's shared space to to grow yes. so you know you can actually get a lot on a small spot yeah, no, I remember watching this documentary, the, the thing that really fascinated me was uh, the shared space you're talking about where younger children, younger people were interacting with older people that that's kind of almost lost. Yeah, we don't, we, we just, it's a peer-to-peer -peer society at this stage. We don't have that code. Like what we still have in Italy, in parts of small villages in Italy end up villaging in Australia where everybody's everybody and everybody... That's and this is imperative for me. I've been dreaming into this for more than 20 years and I'm 53 now and um, uh, when I get to 60, I want to know where I'm going to be growing old. Now that's not to say I'm not going to travel all over the world mm -hmm. then, but I want to have mm -hmm. my nest that I can come back to where there's people there who care about me, mm -hmm. who, you know, I once heard a lovely um, concept where it's a good idea to have friends in every decade. So, you know, have friends from zero to 10, from 10 to 20, and nurture those people, you know? And this is the cycle of life. And as I'm getting older, and I've also, um, I was sent the gift of cancer at 49 years of age, uh, and I needed people, you know? And I, you know, we're, we all need people at different stages in our lives. 
And so, yeah, we need to nourish those relationships. So I want to be living with people who will come and go in the, in the co-housing, but that there will always be people there who, you, who I've built relationship with, who I love and who love me, mm-hmm. and that I have a sense of belonging and a sense of purpose. And what I loved about um, Lilac in Leeds, there was a gentleman there I went to visit two years ago. His name is Clive, he's 83, so he's 85 now. He cuts the grass. That's one of his jobs, you know? Mm-hmm. So he has a reason to get up in the morning. It's Brilliant. beautiful and yeah. necessary. And what, what, so what is the, where are you now with it? What is the next step and when do you think you'll have the common ground, as you call it, yeah. to get started? Yeah. So we don't know okay. is the honest answer. Okay. Um, I've been part of this for uh, three years now. Um, where we were a core group of, it fluctuated between kind of six and nine people and we realised, boy, there's a huge amount of work to do here. We're changing the paradigm of housing in Ireland. Six people, we're not going to be able to cut it. So we opened it to a wider group and we 35 is kind of who landed and it felt like a kind of an, an optimal good amount of people. So we're just... Uh, we're using a form of governance called sociocracy, where we, we work in circles or task teams, if you like. And so we've got someone working on legal and finance. We've got someone working on land. We've got someone working on grants. We've got someone working on media. And um, so we're, we're, we're just forming. We're still, we're at the embryonic Good. stage. Yes, yeah. fair enough. Okay, I won't. I, I will ask you more because I'm fascinated by the whole thing. Um, now let's stick with what you had in your list, which is put some lime in the coconut. Yeah, great song, <laughs> great tune, as you say. I don't know. I can't remember who wrote it, but we'll find out. That was Harry Nielsen. Harry Nielsen. Yeah. So our house was filled with music uh, when I was growing up, and my father even. Um, ran a speaker into the bathroom so when you're in the bath you could have uh, music playing uh, so it was all through the house and it was records I mean he had probably about a thousand records and uh, he was hugely into jazz and um, Harry Nielsen was just one of the records that myself uh, like a lot of these songs that I've chosen are family anthems shall we say and that was one of the songs and just jumping off the couch screaming it at the top of her voice and it's the, the words are so easy and they make no sense whatsoever but it's just the energy of the song and um i go to a camp every year i've been going for the last 13 years called earth song and uh we we camp for 10 nights and on the wednesday night it's an open night which is called campfire night and I just have such beautiful memories of um, going through the whole, it's, eight, it's an 18 acre field, and there's 500 people on it. And um, myself and my sister and some people playing guitar, going through the whole field, singing this song for maybe an hour and a half, you know, <laughs> snaking through, it was wonderful. second with the co-housing. I know I have a lot more to ask you, but because it, 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 to me it makes a lot of sense, but I'd like to understand a little bit more. So when you buy the, let's say you tomorrow everything comes together, you find a plot of land in wherever maybe, I don't know, somewhere down in South Wicklow, whatever. Uh, Greystones. Uh, well, Greystones, yes. that's where you're looking? I believe in miracles. Okay. I absolutely believe in miracles, so yes, Okay. this area. Let's say you find a place in Greystones. Then, the 40 family, let's call it 40 because it's an easy number to remember, get together. At that point, financially and everything else, how does that work? How does it, and how does it differ then from buying your own house in terms of practical, you still have to, unless you have cash, you still have to get some sort of a finance. To, Absolutely. Okay. Okay. How does it differ? Yep. Yeah. So how it differs is we 
know that when we stepped into this project that we would all have to have 10% of the build cost. So at the moment, based on Lilac Leeds cost of houses, for a one bed, I think it was coming in in or around, let's just say 170,000. Mm -hmm. For a uh, four bed, it was coming in at around 250, okay? So for those that want, let's just go with the 250,000. Sure. So 10% of that is 25,000. Mm -hmm. So if you are wanting a four bed in it, you need to have 25,000 to be ready to step in when we have our land. Mm -hmm. So 40 people by 25,000, you do the maths, I mm -hmm. can't right now, mm -hmm. it's quite a lot. Mm -hmm. It's enough to get us started. Okay. And then we will, at the moment, um, in fact, my husband is going to be in with Bank of Ireland this evening, talking to them. They've got a, a green banking part okay. of their bank. And um, so yes, we will, at the moment, most probably have to get a large loan and so that is one possibility another is there are huge grants out there for people who are doing sustainable renewable building okay. so we'll be also tapping into that um, and the way it differs then from a mortgage is that we will be borrowing because we're a cooperative we'll be borrowing so say we need to borrow four million and um, we will borrow that hopefully either it'll come in through grants or an ethical bank shall we say mm -hmm. and so myself and my husband we will be needing to buy shares in the co-op okay. so it's shares as opposed to a single mortgage and we will be buying 250,000 euros worth of shares. Okay. So out of the 40 dwellings, we will own a 40th of okay. the co-op as opposed to our house. I see what you mean, yeah. Okay, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. So obviously then it's important to have like-minded people and, and you know, to grow. And how, how the lilac... Uh, in Leeds, is that one off? Is, has it been more? No, it, it, uh, we hope to uh, replicate to and we hope to be the next. And I think what happens is in the world, there's a tipping balance. Mm. And so please God, we'll be the second. Mm. And then for me, energetically, like I would love for us to get ourselves on the ground through grants. Okay. Because what I would love is like, you know, this is, it's, it's affordable in terms of finances, mm. but in terms of cost and investment, I have spent probably, well, certainly hundreds and hundreds of hours on this project. That if you were to put that into, you know, cash, what would that transpire mm. as? Um, sorry, what, but just back to the question, I lost my uh, train of thought there. The it was just a why why there hasn't been an added lilac in the UK. You're, you're probably going to be the second lilac. Yeah, uh, there was another piece from that, but anyway, um, you know the bottom line is there's the way things are set out in society at the moment. It's suiting a few people at the top. I think it's five percent of the wealth is. You know, the, the, the vast majority of the wealth is owned by 5% sure. of the people in Ireland. They don't want to give that up. So until that, you know, at government level, so to go and change at government level is a huge amount of work. Mm -hmm. So we're not trying to change anybody. What we're trying to do is create something over here okay. and do it on our own. Uh, but there was something else that was really important that I just wanted to come back to. Uh, anyway, it might come back. Okay. Come back. No, but is it obviously the biggest difficulty there is that 5% that we're talking about, or, or like we, at the moment we, in great sense, is the second, the, the, the second coming of the Celtic Tiger, you know, building everywhere. Um, and obviously they're a lot more profitable than what you're trying to do. 
Yeah. So that's your biggest difficulty, right? To find that one acre or two acres of what you're looking for. It is and it isn't. Like, you know, as I say, I believe in miracles. And I, I don't say that in a an unaccountable kind of a way, you know. Um, it's so small, you know, what we're looking for, that it just takes a chink. So, you know, there's there are lands that are owned by the council. There's lands that are owned by the Land Development Agency. There's lands that are owned by the Sustainable Land Authority. And their job is to create homes for people that are affordable. Yeah. And we are offering them that solution. So that's where we're at at the moment. We're creating a steering committee. We're in talks with these bodies. And they love what we're doing. So, you know, let these guys the boom is still going, they're doing what they're doing, and we're just quietly beavering away over here. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Knights in white satin, moody blues. <gasps> oh, before <laughs> you say the words, oh my God. So that song, I mean, so that's my seven, my, my 14 to 21 in terms of the seven year cycle. Mm. And it is visceral. So that was the song that was on when we were slow dancing. Those agonizing years where would someone ask you up to dance at the disco? And it is when I, I just, I can see it so clearly. It was that first French kiss with this guy <laughs> who I was just madly, passionately in love with. And we put the song on just on replay you know on the record player over and over again and when i hear it in just the first few bars of it boom 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 and i am right back there that innocence that it's so pure oh nice. so that's nice satin for me nights in white satin never reaching the end Letters I've written Never meaning to send Beauty I'd always missed With these eyes before Just what the truth is I can't say anymore Right, so let's move on from the, the housing bit. Hopefully then be able to do more in a couple of months time or six months time if something happens we'll have you on again we can talk about it a bit more but you mentioned your, your father and the music and your mother it sounds like a really interesting upbringing in terms of as a family you know music is fantastic medium but sometimes we as parents we don't always share that love for the music and we felt I'm sure we all say it at some point, or oh, I can't believe you're listening to that and what have you. But tell me a bit about the upbringing and, uh, and a little bit about what, what I was like. Yeah. So um, I had a colourful upbringing, shall we say. And, um, you know, it's only as I got older, obviously it was normal when I was growing up in it for me. But, you know, when I hear other people's stories, um, how very colourful it was, really. So uh, both my parents um, are Jewish, um, which is unusual, especially in Ireland. I think there's less than 500 Jewish people in Ireland, uh, but there was a thriving Jewish community back then. Um, so my, we were reared in Terenure, where there was a big Jewish community uh, that I was very much a part of. And um, my father was an artist, and he was yeah a lover of jazz he had his own jazz label where he recorded uh, louis stewart and uh, brian dunning and was very into the irish jazz scene but also you know just the american jazz scene um and he had his own gallery on capel street and what was wonderful about dad was he was one of those artists who um he just he loved art for the sake of art and really supported people who had talent um and he 
he nurtured them into being like he really gave them a step up um, and you know he kind of if there was a ladder he'd help them onto the first rung the second rung and then he'd just kind of stand back as they went mm. you know and cheered them on as it were and um, my mum was the first person to set up um, a contemporary dance company in Ireland mm -hmm. so she was the first person to bring dance in so um, in that colourful way, you know, we used to have people coming in from all over the world, dancers, contemporary dancers, and um, back then a lot of the male dancers were homosexual. So we, I just remember Bill T. Jones, this absolutely beautiful, huge black gay man staying in our home, you know, in, in our teens. So there was always um, people who were just a little bit different passing through our home and um yeah i mean there were my it was just you know we had a big kitchen table and you know ours was always the house that people would come back to after school for a cup of coffee and there was dinner parties in the house and um just remembering as i speak to you you know my mum and dad Oh, dancing to Aussie Beast or something in calf towns um, and looking in <laughs> through the window at them just going wild. You know, I was in my teens and so I don't know what that made them. I suppose they were in their their 40s, you know. Um, so, yeah, a little bit different. But um, what about then, like the Jewish community you mentioned in Terra Neur, um, which was probably the biggest in Ireland at that stage, but what did it affect your upbringing, your kids, your friends, I should say, in school? Were you the, the odd one out? Um, there was five of us, I think, in my particular year. So I went to a Jewish primary school um, up until the age of 10. And then I went to the high school in Rathgar uh, for sixth class and then from first to sixth year. And there was a handful of us. And in fact, in the mornings, so it was a Protestant school, and in the mornings there was assembly and there was a room for the Jewish kids to go and say Jewish prayers, which was lovely. Mm -hmm. And then we'd go back in for the announcements, everyone would be, you know, amalgamated together. And um, I, I had my school friends um, and then at the weekends I would hang out with my Jewish friends because we'd go to a place called Maccabi which was the Jewish youth club and that's where the discos were mm -hmm. and so well it depended like on a Friday night I could go out to the the local disco which was kind of school disco which was everybody Jewish kids non-Jewish kids and then Saturday night would be kind of the Jewish kids up in Maccabi. Mm -hmm. are, you st are you still practicing? Are you practicing? Did you go to the synagogue or anything? No, I would describe myself, I feel 100% Jewish. Um, and in the Jewish religion, um, your children as a woman, um, it's, that's what carries the bloodline. Mm -hmm. So um, both my boys, to me, are Jewish, not practicing, just traditional. And it's just... It's in my cells. Mm -hmm. I am a Jewish woman. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I was reared, you know, it, with the festivals and as I said, going to a, um, a Jewish school. So we learned Hebrew mm -hmm. and yeah. And when I, you know, I went to Israel for a period of time for three months and I felt very much at home there, you know. Yeah, I know it's, a, it's quite a strong traditional faith and very much carries through and I know I have a couple of my friends uh, that still practice, they still go to the synagogue and uh, yeah, interesting, interesting. Now, Don't Stop Swaying, yeah. who's that now? Okay, so that's Sophie B. Hawkins and um, I went to live in Paris when I was uh, 22 and I was working in a restaurant called the LA Bar and Grill. I was part of the opening crew in 92 for Euro Disney. And what they did was they flew in chefs from all over the world who were really amazing chefs. And the restaurant that I worked in was a shadow restaurant of uh, Wolfgang, I can't remember his second name. Anyway, he had some really famous restaurants in California. And they had flown in this guy called Jay Perno who um, was uh, uh, who I was chefing with and um, I had 
he was the first person I met. He was a couple of years older than me. I was, yeah, 22. He was 20. No, no, we were the same age. Sorry. Um, so he, when he touched the food and when he spoke about food, it was the first time I'd experienced that, um, that connection. And um, it was the first time I ever actually swooned and went completely weak at the knees in the presence of somebody <laughs> of the opposite sex. And um, we were shopping on the Champs-Élysées in um, one of the record stores there. And uh, he picked up, you know, you could uh, listen to CDs. And he was listening, he put on Sophie B. Hawkins and he, I remember him just saying, Ooh, I quite like this. And he bought the CD and then I bought the CD. And that particular song, oh my God, it's so incredibly sexy. And I find so much of Sophie B. Hawkins' music so incredibly sensual. The journey it brings you on and the story, the words. You know, it, it's one of my sorrows. I don't, do you play the whole songs at the end of the podcast? Can people listen to the whole songs? Uh, not, in, uh, not in the podcast, but on the radio. But oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Because um, that's always one of my sorrows is that we don't get to hear the whole song when I'm listening to your podcast. So, you know, for all these for several of these songs you actually need to hear the whole song yeah, to get the full there's a link there's a link for all the songs on, okay. the, on the website yeah okay great uh, so yeah this particular song it's it's oh my god i just go back again to that time that swoon my knees that connection with this with this beautiful chef I saw you. Okay, well, you mentioned a few times you've done quite a lot of traveling um, for different reasons. And I'm just curious how you for how Dave Davis became Dave Davis because we all go through the seven year cycles, and I'm, I know exactly 28, so that was mine. That's, I think it was pretty much, I realized who I was. It took me 28 years, but that's so be it. But you obviously, through the chefs and the Australian, just give me an idea how you found your way because you, you, you're chefing, you do, do quite a lot of things and there's another things I want to ask you about your birthing and, and all of that but just give me an idea how you went from school to possibly college and beyond. So I was absolutely blessed with both my parents that I was given permission to follow what was, what my flow was. Um, my dad always said, you know, if I asked, you know, should I try, should I do this? Say, try it. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain is what he used to say. Mm -hmm. So I finished school um, at 18 in the high school and I didn't get a particularly good leaving. And I was always, I was in the B stream in school and I was, all, all my friends were in A stream. So they all, you know, excelled and were going to college. And I never wanted to go to college, but um, I didn't feel ready to step into the world. So I repeated my leaving in the Institute of Education. And I got offered um, a post as an au pair in California, in San Francisco. And I just said, hell yeah. So I, I suppose that's how I put one step in front of the others. When I get that hell yeah inside myself, I follow it. So I went to California for a year. I appeared for a beautiful family, um, Janet and Irvin Mays. They were both anesthesiologists in Stanford University and the Veterans Hospital there. And I looked after their two kids who were 12 and 14, who I really got on well with. And they looked after me very well. And I, yeah, got to hang out in San Francisco for a year. What's not to like? <laughs> and uh, I was going out with a guy then um, who he came over the 
the first summer that I was there. So I was there for 14 months. So I came over for the first summer I was there and the second summer. And yeah, it was just an amazing time. So yeah, obviously traveling. Yeah, and it, well, how did you get into chefing, or was it just? Uh, so I came because home, you still do some chefing, don't you? Yeah. Okay. So I came home from um, uh, California, and yeah, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was twenty years of age, and my brother then was being bar mitzvahed in Jerusalem at the the wall. So I said, right, instead of going over just for the bar mitzvah, I'll go for three months. And I went to work on the boats down in Elat, where we went down to Taba and back and I'd be chefing on the boats. Um, and I did quite a lot of cooking as a, an au pair as well for the family. And my mum was a really good cook, so I'd learned a lot of stuff at home. And um, then I was offered um, a, a year scholarship with the Alex Gardner Cordon Bleu Cookery School in Waterloo Road and yeah it's just like hell yeah so <laughs> I did that and I trained with Alex and I got a really good foundation of uh, cooking and um, so it was herself and Bally Malou at the time and so I spent the year with Alex and then um, when I finished my year with Alex I asked, could I rent her cookery school from her, which had like 12 benches in it. And I ran Deb's cookery school for kids from uh, age 10 to 14. And that was a tremendous success. It was five one week courses. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, yeah, I was just, you know, at a, a, a loose ebb and um, somebody said that um, Munchie's Sandwich Bar were looking for somebody to manage one of their outlets so I went and met with them and they said yeah we'd love you to manage the Wicklow Street one so I did that for a year and then the opportunity to go to Paris came in where they came over and they did mass interviews in Jury's Hotel thousands of people went they hired 2,000 people in the two days that they came into Ireland. Yeah. And I was one of them. And I went to Paris and lived in Paris for a year. Brilliant. And then from Paris, I went to visit my friend in Brussels, who was brought me to his favorite patisserie shop called Vitamir on the Sablon. And when I worked in Paris, I used to go to Fouchon and look in the window there at the patisserie. Nothing, had nothing like it in Ireland at the time. And I met the chef going in the side entrance of uh, Vitamir and I said, oh, are you ever looking for people to work here? And they said, well, I'll ask the chef. And he said, um, yeah. So I went to work in Brussels for a year in this right. pastry Good. chef. So just care for him, just speak whatever Absolutely. comes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, your next song is uh, Welcome to the World. Yeah. Welcome to the World. So Welcome to the World, um, I first heard uh, when I came back from Australia, which was the best year of my life. And to come home from that at 28, where yes, as you say for yourself, when I really knew who I was. And I came home and I had met incredible people. I'd fallen completely in love with, with many people while I was away falling in love with the landscape and um, just the freedom to be me and um, came home to what felt a very, it was a very lonely time. So from a, this complete high to a real low. And I got offered a job uh, on location down in Baltimore in County Cork for three months uh, working on a catering rig. And on a Thursday night, Charlie Stevens would run five rhythms in Skibbereen. And I went to the class and he played this song by Tony Child and the words in it, welcome to the world and sometimes it's going to be hard. And it just, the honesty of that, the permission to know that yes, it is hard sometimes. It just made me cry made me relax into, thank God we can be honest about this, you know. Sometimes it's really hard and sometimes it is really amazing. And she says both in that song. I love the honesty of it. And when Nathan Happiness was born, um, uh, he was born at home up in Sally Gap. 
and my request was um, that that song was put on as soon as he was born. So that that was, obviously, the baby, but for me it was the intention and to let him know, you know what, well, he just come through his rite of passage of being born, but you know, that life sometimes is hard. Just uh, as a lead into from Welcome to the World and Nathan's, uh, he's 20 now, right? Yep. 20. The first time I, I actually, I don't really met you, but our common friend Petra said, oh, that's uh, Deb, she's a doula. And I was like, well, I don't even know what a doula is. I still don't know. Okay, So great. tell me a bit about yeah. what a doula is and what it, what you do, what you used to do. I'm not sure if you're still doing the doula. Yeah. So um, a, the word doula is a Greek word, which means handmaiden. And back in the day, it was the handmaidens who served the women when they were in labor. So that is what I do. Um, and it's a vocation. Um, it's not something that if someone inherently doesn't have it in them, it's not something you can really teach somebody. So when um, Nathan Happiness was born, um, I didn't know that orgasmic birth was possible, but that's what I experienced. And it was only afterwards I spoke to a friend and I said, you know, this is what I experienced when I was birthing him. And she said, oh yeah, orgasmic birth, you know, I've heard of that. And because I'd had such an incredible experience birthing, I wanted to sing it from the rooftops. I wanted every woman to know that this was possible. And um, I thought, okay, I'll have to be a midwife. But you know, studying has never been my thing. I'm not academic. And then I heard of the concept of a doula and I knew I was one. Mm. Yeah. So, um, I, am I a doula? Once you're a doula, you're always a doula. Yeah. Am I a practicing doula? At the moment, I can't do on call because you're basically on call for a month from when a woman is, you know, energetically, you're feeling into it from when a woman is 37 weeks, but then you're kind of really on call from 38 to what could be 42 weeks. So you can't go within an hour drive of where you are. I'm not a drinker, but you know, for other do you can't have a drink. Mm -hmm. You're all the time thinking, okay, what if I get the call? Mm. You know? Mm. Yeah. And uh, have you assisted many births? Um, not that many. I, I suppose in or around, um, actually present for probably around a dozen, <laughs> um, but assisted way more than that in terms of even I know dropping in the phrase orgasmic birth it plants a seed for people wow is that possible mm -hmm. so from that point of view yes i think i have maybe not assisted but had an impact on people's birthing journeys okay wow that's an interesting one never heard of it because you've quite a quite a lot of things going on you, you, you seem to be doing quite a there's another thing i spotted that you're doing this uh, ship scheme What's that right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I first went to Budderfield over in the UK and I camped um, and I was freezing cold in the tent at night. It was miserable. And someone said, have you ever slept on a sheepskin? And I bought my first sheepskin there and it was sublime. It totally changed my experience from being cold and not sleeping to being completely comfortable at night. And... Uh, then when I came back, Earth Song started for the first time, and there was loads of people at Earth Song who didn't have sheepskin, so I decided to buy them so that they were. We have a little market day at Earth Song, so I was able to sell them to people there, and I'm just passionate about them as a product. I just I I love anything that 
makes people happy and those sheepskins make me so happy and I have lots of different colors so for me color I find very healing very energizing and I'm drawn to different colors at different times so I have every color under the rainbow and yeah they, they just have a certain vibration which I find very healing and I love to offer things that I love to other people. Okay, that's great. Now, um, if Sinead O'Connor hold back the night, and then the last second two, you have to make a call between Ian Brown and Great Gig in the Sky. But I'd like to think about that. So, hold back the night, Sinead O'Connor. So, Sinead would be one of the people that I respect the most in the world. I I've been to see her many times live and it's been a religious experience. There is something around, there's a transmission in her voice, her energy, her words. And this, so, you know, in terms of choosing a song, oh my God, I could choose any one of them. But this particular song was marked the end of a seven year cycle when I was 35, where I had met and fallen in love with Nathan's dad four years previously. And four years to the month, um, we separated. And it was that moment when you know you've lost him. He's, we're done here. He, and I wasn't done, but he was done. And emotionally, he had left the relationship. And that song of how you don't want it to end, it's, it, it, it's completely unbearable. The thought of it ending um, and that if you listen to the words you know hold back the night you know just if we can stay in the daytime it's not going to end and yeah so it just it brings all that in I want to ask you something, if only if you're happy to talk about it. You mentioned the way you put it, you were gifted um, with cancer when you were 49, so it's only a few years back. Yeah. Um, and again, I remember friends telling me, oh, yeah, Deb, she's, she's dealing with it in a completely different way than most people. Can you tell me about the journey, if, if it's okay? Yeah, of course. So, um, yes, I described it as being uh, sent the gift of cancer. Um, I my own experience of it is it's a divine tap on the shoulder we're all gonna die and um i feel very lucky that i've always been at peace with that concept that uh, we're all going to die and when i was 25 um, i had a, a car accident and uh, i was driving very fast uh, on a road, uh, a country road in Cavan, and uh, it had been raining after a dry spell, so it was very skiddy. And I went around the corner, and a 32 foot cattle lorry was coming towards me. And um, I slammed on my brakes and I skidded underneath, um, and that's how I stopped. But just before um, the moment of impact, everything slowed right down. And this voice in my head said really clearly and really strongly, do you want to live? Do you want to die? You get to choose. And I was like, oh, I don't know. Do you want to live? Or do you want to die? And I said, I want to live. And up until that point, I had always maintained life had been excruciatingly painful for me. And I'd always maintained that if someone could give me a little black tablet that would make me disappear and disappear from everybody's memory of anybody whose life I'd ever impact, I would take it without a second thought. So this was a real moment of me stepping into the world, but also a real trust and sense of 
when it's your time, it's your time. So that's how I felt about the cancer. Now, I'm not going to say it was all easy. When I describe it as a gift, there was parts of it that were very challenging. And um, I'm not going to lie, it took me to my knees. There was, there was mornings where I would wake up, you know, those bewitching hours, five in the morning, where I was crawling around my back garden, retching with the fear of, you know, how was life going to look? I had a five-year-old at the time and a 16-year-old, and, uh, and my husband, of course. Um, and I got the information that I had cancer. I, I went into hospital, and uh, my dear friend, Eve Daly, who you did a beautiful interview with, um, she came in with me, and um, I just received the news and you know they're very clever in the hospital they put it in a way where it's like oh well you might have a little bit of disease here anyway when I walked out of the um, oncologist office and um, I turned to Neve and as we walked down the steps in Vincent's and I said so you could say um, I have breast cancer I said it out loud and in that moment it was a blue light that came up in front of me and it was like a, 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 this huge Japanese sword that just went, whoosh, bring it on. I've got this. I am going to do this. I'm, I didn't know whether I was going to live or die, but I'm going to do my best. And with that then, I sought out stories of people who had navigated um cancer and I just surrounded myself by a team of people who believed I could do it, who um, had cured themselves of cancer and um, I, I, I hit it at all the different levels, at the physical level, the emotional level, the spiritual level and it was one of the biggest gifts of my life because there was a whole load of stuff that needed to fall away in my life. I've let go of those and I'm much happier. I, leave, I found new, it sent me in new directions like sea swimming and mm. uh, the Wim Hof breathing and you know just wonderful stuff that I hadn't been into before. Mm. So, so many gifts and that um yeah, the, the the old cliche that every moment of every day is a gift because you do not know when that's going to be taken away. And so did you have to go through the whole, um, let's call it a standard procedure of uh, whatever it is. Um, chemo. Chemo and all that. You yeah. To do all that, yeah. So uh, that, uh, so what I was offered in the hospital was I was offered uh, chemo, radiation and mastectomy. That's what I was I was offered, and um, I agonised. It was the it was the single most difficult experience of my life, um, the, choosing the chemo. And I I looked everywhere. I prayed. I said, please God, send me an alternative. And then what gave me peace was if I'm not meant to take chemo, send me in another option. And um, I was talking to um, my son Nathan, who his wisdom is just, just blows me away out of the mouth of babes. He, he was sitting at the end of my bed going, you know, I'm just, I'm praying for a miracle here, Nathan. I don't want to do the chemo. Mm. And he said, well, mum, maybe the miracle is chemo. Maybe the miracle is that you can take chemo and that's what's going to save your life. And that's what showed up for you. And when he said that, something landed deep inside me. And then I went to my doctor, Nick Green, who I really trust as well. And he said, Deb, you know, I know people who've gone the alternative route. My, I buried my sister and she tried everything. She tried, you know, um, and um, you're going to need to do this chemo. You know, and when he said that, I trusted Nick. And so what I did was I did say yes to the chemo. They wanted to give me 16 rounds of chemo 
Um, I took my first round of chemo the day before I went to Earth Song, uh, which was a 10 day retreat. I had 500 people praying for me there. I had um, uh, different healing modalities nearly every day. And within two rounds of chemo, I could feel that the lump had disappeared. So I think it was a combination of, I do believe in spontaneous healing um, and the chemo. Um, and after eight rounds, I could feel nothing. I went back to my oncologist and she said, okay, look, we'll pull you in for an early uh, scan and they could find absolutely nothing. So then when they offered me the radiation, I said, no, thank you. Um, I'm not going to do radiation. I'd spoken to several people who'd said, and they said that was the worst part of it for them because they were really scarred for life after that. So I said, no, thank you. Um, and then they wanted to give me a mastectomy to be sure, to be sure. And I said, no, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to decline that for now. Okay. So, and how are you now? You look well. Thank you very much. I'm feeling better than I've ever felt. You know, we don't know with cancer. Um, we're all cancering all the time. That's what our bodies are doing. So that's what I'm doing. I'm cancering. Um, I'm moving through cancer for the rest of my life. Um, I'm monitoring with lots of different modalities. And I'm having to drop deep into my um, intuition. Well, one of the things you said to me uh, over, actually, I can't remember, Facebook or something, uh, I posted something you said, uh, and it really stayed with me, and I mentioned to a couple of other people, you said, uh, don't worry about the weeds, just plant some flowers, you know, I love that. So now I'm going to ask you for more words of wisdom before I, I, I'll ask you for the last song. Give me some words of wisdom, any quotes that you did? Um, well, you know, the um, that beautiful quote you know what are you going to do with your one wild and precious life and um for me you know the question is every single one of us has got our purpose our passion yeah. and i've been blessed that i've had two parents who have really really supported me to do that so that's what i say to people is have the courage to be real, to, to be yourself and, you know, hang around with people who get you and who will support you in your dreams. Fabulous. Now, the big choice between Ian Brown, the sweet, fantastic, the great geek in the sky by Pink Floyd. You have to pick one, I'm afraid. Oh, oh God. Well, can I, okay, can I just say that the reason that I want you to put in the Ian Brown is... Yeah. Um, I, I want to give a shout out to my uh, husband Shaggy, who did this song was dedicated to him. It, if we had a traditional wedding ever, uh, that would be our song. And uh, because the words are, you make me feel majestic, uh, sweet, fantastic. And we put it on and we dance in the kitchen. We put it on really loud. And he makes me feel majestic. And he is a magnificent human being. So I just want to give a, I want to honor him. Mm. Um, but Great Gig in the Sky, oh my God, Pink Floyd, I love them again. They were my 14 to 21, you know, and I went to see uh, The Wall in the Aviva a number of years ago. And when they when it came on, I just burst into tears. It was just so, again, just my whole body responded to it. Um, and then I went to see them, uh, I went to see Roger Waters again there a couple of years ago in the... Uh, the point, yeah. Yeah, the point, and it, 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 it was just mind-blowing, absolutely mind-blowing. But that particular song, The Great Gig in the Sky, it just brings me places. So the story of it is that the woman who sings it was asked to just stand in front of the mic and just make sounds like an instrument. but. That is a pure, raw, unbridled, orgasmic sound. So, you know, I love that orgasmic energy and uh, that it just brings me down. Well, I'll pick one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Deb Davis, thanks Emilia for your time. <laughs> really appreciate it. You're welcome, thank you.
ライブ。